Welcome to Present Value, a podcast created by students at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. As some of our dedicated listeners may have already noticed, I'm not Michael Brady. I'm Chris Alberico, a senior producer here, and I'll be your host for this episode. Now that we're up and running, we'll plan to rotate hosts as we move through the year. This is the fifth episode in our 10-part season. If you enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review and share it. We have Drew Pasquarella joining us on Present Value this month. Pasquarella is a senior lecturer of finance and head of the investment banking immersion here at Johnson. He holds a bachelor's in computer information systems from James Madison University and an MBA from our beloved Johnson School, where he was a Freed Fellow. Pasquarella spent 15 years working in bulge bracket investment banking, including a role as a director in the Technology Investment Banking Group at Citi, where he oversaw $35 billion in deals. He's also currently the managing director and head of East Coast Banking at VistaPoint Advisors. Drew Pasquarella, we are excited to have you and welcome to Present Value. Thanks very much for having me. Excited to be here. So let's start our conversation with acquainting our listeners a little bit more with your experience. We mentioned you worked on $35 billion of deals. Could you talk about an interesting deal or maybe an unusual deal? Yeah, sure. So really happy to be here, really happy to talk about my career in investment banking. So it spanned at City about 10 years. City, one of the big bulge bracket firms, lots of what we used to call top of the fold transactions. So if you look at the Wall Street Journal, the first half or the top half are the sort of most important deals of the day. And, and City had more than their fair share of those when I was there. So lots of really cool deals to talk about and, and lots of good war stories uh, that I've acquired over the years. I'd say one of the more interesting deals that I worked on was actually not an M&A deal, but a joint venture. So it was a very specific circumstance. So a joint venture is when two companies drop down some of their assets and form a new company, and that entity is owned maybe 50-50 or 60-40 by the companies that actually contributed the assets to that new company. So in this case, my client was Nokia, and we worked across the table from Morgan Stanley and their client was Siemens. And a little bit of background here. So this is in the 2005-2006 timeframe. Nokia and Siemens were part of a basically an eight-player industry that did technology network infrastructure. So all the stuff that makes cell phones and you know the internet work, if you will. And there were eight players in the industry at the time. Ericsson was by far the, the number one. Huawei, which is now a huge Chinese company, you know, sort of taking over the world, they were much smaller then, but had a very low cost base and were sort of charging the hill, if you will. And then you had six players in the middle that were all really undersized, underscaled. They all basically did the same thing. They were trying to get out of the way of, of one another. So that was Nokia, Siemens, Nortel, Motorola, Lucent, and Alcatel. And Ericsson was double the size of each one of those. Huawei was the low-cost provider. And we were trying to figure out what combinations of those six companies would work to create the next Ericsson to be able to sort of fend off that that low-cost provider. So after a number of different iterations and conversations, it turned out that Nokia and Siemens, we thought, was a really good combination of corporate culture, of assets, of client bases. And we, on behalf of Nokia, we didn't want to sell our business. We wanted to acquire Siemens. Siemens was a very proud, they actually got their start 160 years ago in the telecommunications industry. So they certainly didn't want to sell their business either. And we wound up taking the communications assets out of Nokia and out of Siemens, forming a brand new company, Nokia Siemens Networks, 
which had about $25 billion in, in combined sales. And it was the largest corporate joint venture ever created in history, even to that day. Really fun. Very unique circumstance. Took over a year to do. Finns and, and Germans are uh, lots of complementary features about those cultures, but also lots of clashes. And it was interesting to see that from start to finish. So a joint venture is not what we think of when we think of deals and M&A and even investment banking. What is it in particular that your team had to do as opposed to a typical deal? So in M&A, unless it's a merger of equals, there's always a buyer and a seller. So there's always somebody that gains control and there's somebody who's ceding control. So that limits the number of possibilities about things like who the CEO will be, what the name of the company will be, where the company will be headquartered, how the ownership split will be set, what sort of assets will be transferred from one company to the other, that, that sort of thing. So there's lots and lots and lots of precedent with respect to all kinds of, of M&A transactions. Joint ventures, much less so. There's less academic research, there are fewer precedent transactions, and everything has to feel like teamwork and has to feel like these two companies are coming together you know, as friends and, and forming this brand new entity to go charge the hill again against, against Ericsson. So there just wasn't a lot to look back on in terms of my career or other transactions that others had worked on before me. We were able to you know, see what happened, learn, and, and be able to put that into action. So a lot of it was sort of learning as we went. And again, you know, when you're dealing with two equals from different cultures, complementary, but from different cultures, and there was nobody in charge by definition because this was a joint venture and not an acquirer-seller situation, every single conversation was challenging because, again, there was no one person in control that was trying to form that team along the way. So let's take a little bit of a step back here. For our listeners and for me as well, who may not be familiar with what investment banking is and what a banker does, what is the value add that a banker provides? That's a really good question. So my father, um, who certainly will be listening to this podcast, he used to ask me, and he's, he's since been indoctrinated into what investment banking really is, but he, as he and I were learning this along the way, we assumed that investment bankers were stock pitch people. So, you know, I managed assets and, you know, he would ask me for my best stock pitch ideas. And what I think we both quickly found out was an investment banker has nothing to do with investments and doesn't do any lending and, and doesn't really have anything to do with the bank. An investment banker is a very unique role that's played inside of a financial services firm, either a company like Citigroup or JP Morgan or a standalone firm known as a boutique, such as an Evercore or a Molus. And they basically do two things. They advise corporate clients, so companies only. So our clients would never be an individual. They would very rarely be, say, a, you know, a state government, something like that. So almost always corporations. And we would advise those corporations on mergers and acquisitions transactions. So buying other companies or selling themselves to another company or buying and selling particular assets inside of companies and capital raising. So mergers and acquisitions, capital raising. So if you're going to raise capital, you can either sell part of yourself, you can sell new equity to the market, or you can raise capital by way of borrowing it via the bond market, or you can you know, sell bonds or raise debt capital. So it's really just those mergers and acquisitions and capital raising functions that an investment banker uh, does for more hours during the week than they would like. To follow up on that, an image I have in my head is that bankers spend all night sweating over spreadsheets, building presentations, looking for ways to sell the deal to the acquiree or to the acquirer. With the new world we're moving into, with more data transparency, that image doesn't seem to jive anymore. What is the banker's role going forward? Are they going to perform the same function, or is that going to evolve over time? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and and I would say you know the role has evolved since I started back in two thousand two thousand one, and what I knew of the industry and what people were telling me, say from the late eighties or nineteen nineties through what it looks like today in two thousand eighteen. So you mentioned the sort of analytics or the number crunching or the spreadsheets that more junior investment banker would would work on. That function has changed a lot. So if you think about you know what a spreadsheet software package looked like in the 80s or 90s, it was Lotus One Two Three. It didn't work very well. It was basically a an abacus with a screen and a um, and a keyboard. Now we have very very sophisticated analytics on top of or inside of a, a desktop software like an Excel. So the analytics have really improved, and then the role of the person who's driving those analytics has become a little bit more sophisticated. But I would say the reason why bankers spend lots of hours in in the office doesn't necessarily have to do with the fact that they have data and they're crunching data. It's more, you know, when you're selling a business or buying a business or you're selling part of a business, i.e. you're raising equity, it's very much of a human story. So I mentioned in the context of the joint venture, Nokia Siemens, every one of the conversations that was had about something as innocuous as you know, what assets would transfer over from Siemens to the joint venture. Yes, you, you need to do analytics around the valuation of those assets and what's fair vis-a-vis what Nokia will be dropping in, but every one of those is a negotiation and a human conversation. And being able to back up those human conversations and substantiate your position is, to me, not necessarily something that's going to be outsourced or limited by way of data, but really enhanced by way of your ability to better tell that story in the future. So the role will probably continue to evolve a bit from using more higher power analytics and more data, but the story that you're weaving and and the negotiation that happens in any transaction has very much remained consistent over time. I would be remiss not to bring up some criticism of banking, of course. So you mentioned the value that people see, and then you mentioned how bankers can add value, and they tell these human stories, and they can pull value out by, let's say, doing a joint venture or going to M&A. As you know, there are many publications out there that point to the opposite, or there's even established academics out there that say, more often than not, M&A or involving an investment bank actually destroys value or might not add any value. What would you say to that? What, what are those criticisms and what is your response to that type of information? Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question and something that I, I spent a lot of time talking about and trafficking in. And I know that there are a number of my colleagues, both practitioner and academic, that, um, that espouse the notion that M&A is bad or value destructive on average. And, and what I would say is I, I respectfully disagree. And I'll sort of offer a number of sort of counter arguments to that somewhat you know, negative view about M&A as a, um, as a function. So first of all, to sort of take it up one level, what, what is M&A and why do companies do M&A? M&A in and of itself is not its own thing inside of a company. So it, M&A is not a strategy. M&A is a tool that a strategist uses to affect or execute on a strategy that's been decided upon by the CEO, CFO, board of directors of, of a company. So that's sort of important distinction, number one. You know, if you think about where M&A sits inside of a corporate organization, M&A tends to be a function that reports to the chief strategy officer. The chief strategy officer tends to report to the CEO or the CFO of the company. If the strategy of the firm is to, say, enter a new market, enter a new geography or enter a new product, they may choose to do that organically or through a partnership or most severely from the perspective of the execution that they enact, more severely would be an M&A deal. So 
one company would buy another and the acquired company would have that geographic presence or that new product that the acquiring company would, uh, would like to have. So when you think about value creation or destruction in an M&A deal, you know, a, a chief strategy officer is not interested in a one-day stock price reaction or a one-quarter or even a one-year. These are strategists, people that are, are thinking three, five, maybe 10 years out to the future about the competitive dynamics, about, and we think about a, a Porter's Five Forces analysis, right? So if you think about who the rivals are and who the substitutes are and who the suppliers are and who the customers are, those are not conversations that you're having for the next day in the market. Those are conversations that you're having with respect to sort of steering the ship for the long term. So if you decide on and affect a strategy to go into a new market or a new geography and you use M&A to get there, the measurement, therefore, needs to be measured in sort of multi-year dynamics. The issue is it's really hard to measure an M&A deal over a very long period of time because a lot of things are happening in the market over the period where these two companies that used to be separate are now together. So if you have two $1 billion companies that are you know, in the aggregate worth $2 billion today and they're worth a billion five as a combined entity in 10 years from now, you know, you can measure that and say, well, you know, it looks like $500 million of value has been destroyed in that M&A deal. But it's much more complicated than that, right? So think about, the, you know, you have a change of presidential regime, you have maybe differences in monetary policy, you've gone through maybe a growth and a contraction cycle from an economic perspective, and all of those things are going to affect the value of those companies over time. So it's really hard to measure over the period that the strategy officer is focused on, it's really hard to measure whether or not value is actually created or destroyed. So when you go to measure an M&A deal, most of the people that, are, that attempt to do that understand the sort of issues associated with long-term dynamics, and they focus on the very short term. And the shortest term you could, you could look at is a one-day price reaction after the deal is announced. So the general belief is that when an M&A deal is announced, on average, the share price of the company that's the acquirer goes down and the share price of the company that's getting acquired or the target goes up. And because the company, the surviving company, the buyer, because their share price, it's believed uh, on average is, is going down, people can point to that and say, see, you're, you're destroying value in a company by way of doing this deal. The market doesn't like it. You're paying a premium for the acquired company and you're just transferring value from the acquirer to the target and you're sort of fattening the pockets of the company that's been acquired, but you're not really creating any value. You're just sort of paying somebody off. That's the common belief, and that's what I think people are quoting when they talk about M&A value being destroyed. In fact, since 2010, and that used to be the case that um, you had low single digits, somewhere between 1% and 3% on average, the acquirer's stock price was declining the day after an M&A deal was announced. In fact, though, since 2010, we've actually only had one year, uh, that was in 2016, where on average, the acquirer's stock price has gone down. So the one argument that I think you could hang your hat on when you talk about M&A destroying value, the one data point that people sort of point to 
since 2010 is actually not the case anymore. It's incorrect to say that on average, the acquirer's stock price goes down after an M&A deal is announced. So I really push back or refute the notion that an M&A is not value creating. A, it's a really complex conversation for all the points that I mentioned. And B, even that one data point that people used to hang their hat on, uh, going back now a long time, uh, back to 2010, on average, doesn't hold water anymore. Sounds like you've heard that objection one or two times before. <laughs> you could probably hear that in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a very successful career on Wall Street, then moved to teaching at Cornell. Can you tell us why you made that leap from banking to teaching? Also a really good question, and you know, it goes back to probably a little bit more of, of my personal life. So I grew up, I'm one of four, the second of four, uh, four children to two teachers. My father was a seventh grade math teacher. Uh, my mother was a, a third grade teacher. She took off to have me, but uh, slowly re-entered her teaching career, or, you know, restarted her teaching career once my youngest sister sort of was old enough to be able to take care of herself. So I always respected the craft of teaching. I, my folks would come home from a day in school and I would ask them all about how it went and ask them about their interactions with students. And I'd meet up with or meet former students of both of my parents and they would both talk about how influential they were in their careers and how important the art of teaching was. But I wasn't necessarily on the path to teaching. So I always had in the back of my head that maybe at the end of my career, I would beg either James Madison or, or uh, not the person, but the school. He's, uh, he's unfortunately long gone. I'd beg either James Madison or, or Cornell to let me come back and maybe, uh, you know, guest lecture in a class uh, once or twice before I croaked. So when Cornell called and offered me the position of investment banking immersion leader, which is the class that I took when I was a first year student in the spring of 2000, you know, I almost fell off my chair. So I figured Cornell was not going to call twice. There's no way a mid-career investment banker is going to get offered the opportunity to teach his you know, domain knowledge that I had at an Ivy League school, you know, unless the timing was perfect. So the person who ran the program for 11 years before me, Dr. Al Belosky, still a, a local Ithacan, did a fantastic job with the, with the program. He announced his retirement. Um, I was a reasonably well-known quantity to Johnson. So not only was I a 2001 grad, I was the team captain for city's recruiting efforts at Johnson for eight of the 10 years. I'd come up and do some guest lecturing. So I was a, a reasonably known quantity, both to the institution and to specific faculty members. So I think I was probably top of mind when they thought about who to replace Al with. Now, Al was much older and much more established in the industry. Again, I would consider myself at the time more mid-career. I was 37, 38 years old, had enough experience to be dangerous in, in the classroom, but certainly wasn't an A-lister investment banker. So, you know, I thought long and hard about making the move from New York City to Ithaca and trying my, my hand at a brand new craft, and I'm really glad I did. The support I received from Cornell in my onboarding process was amazing. So first and foremost, not knowing how to teach, I was hired in June of 2012, and I didn't have to start teaching until January of 2013. So I had a full semester to actually come up to speed and sit in on people's classes and sort of understand the way they thought about creating curriculum and delivering it in a classroom in a dynamic way. These immersion programs that we run here at Johnson are pretty unique animals. So I met with a number of the other immersion leaders. I spent a lot of time with Dr. Belosky to sort of learn his thesis for how he was delivering content and creating the great program that, that he built. Spent a lot of time talking to alums and, and used sort of what I knew about the industry and what a junior investment banker needed to look like by the time they graduated from the program and spent a lot of time in that building process. So 
it's an enormously fun and rewarding job. I wake up every day and I, I honestly can't believe that I'm still employed here. It's just a, not because I'm doing a crappy job, but because it's just such a, such a fun thing to do. And, and to have the opportunity to do it, you know, over and over and over again is, is something that uh, I'm just enormously thankful for. So you, you mentioned immersion learning. Uh, could you educate some of our listeners that might not be Johnson School attendees on, first, what is an immersion? Uh, what is immersion learning and why is it important? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I probably jumped ahead a little bit by talking about my specific immersion without giving this sort of intro. So for, for folks that are not familiar with the Johnson curriculum, so we're a two-year MBA program, general management degree. The first semester of your first year, you take what we call the core. So everyone takes the same six classes. So it's accounting and finance and strategy and economics and marketing and critical strategic thinking. Second semester of the first year, we have about 90% of our students take one of seven immersions. And an immersion is loosely tracked to a career focus. So of the seven immersions, we have three in finance, investment banking, corporate finance, which I would sort of say is the role of the chief financial officer inside of an organization, investment research and asset management, or, or people that want to work for hedge funds or mutual funds or want to write research about stocks and bonds. And the differentiator that we have here at Johnson with respect to the immersion is it's a package of academic classes that is curated by the immersion leader for the specific goal of providing the academic theory that's most relevant to the career path that you've chosen. So specific to investment banking, you would do things like financial modeling, corporate financial policy, corporate governance, intermediate accounting. So theory-based classes that are taught by academic faculty, research academic faculty that are top of the world in their craft. And then on top of that package of academic classes, we put what's called a practicum or a wrapper class. And that class is taught either by an academic faculty or a practitioner faculty, which is sort of more of the ilk of me, someone who came out of industry, uh, you know, having worked in that role. And the practicum class attempts to bridge the gap between the theory that's being taught in an individual sort of accounting or finance class to the specific role that the person is going to play both that summer and, and after their career at Johnson is over. There are lots of other schools that do things like case competitions or have lecturers come in from industry and tell you how it works in the real world. But this is a 14-week, you know, very carefully curated and packaged program that leads people week by week through the process of moving from wherever they were to whatever that career focus is that the immersion is focused on. So it's, it's something that I think we do better than everybody else and something that I'm, I'm really proud to participate in. In terms of the history, so how did this actually get started? So experiential learning at Johnson or in, in top business schools is nothing new. The story at Johnson is actually pretty cool. So one of the operations professors, Dick Conway, in the mid-90s was teaching an operations class. And he was doing it in a theory-based academic way, as everybody does or everybody did at the time. And, you know, he thought to himself, you know what's really hard? Teaching something like operations and manufacturing in a classroom without actually having students go out to a factory floor, going out to a manufacturing facility and seeing it and having them experience firsthand what they're studying. So the immersion was really born by Professor Conway in, in thinking that he probably could do a better job for his students by stepping out of the classroom, stepping them out of the classroom 
and providing them with that almost sort of visual experience of what they were learning. And so semester in manufacturing or SMI immersion was the first one that came in. And this was sort of, you know, 1995, 1996 vintage. It was enormously popular right away. And a number of the other academic faculty at the time sort of jumped on the notion of this new immersion structure to our curriculum and started developing very quickly custom-built immersions for, again, a number of functions that you would typically see in an MBA program. So the, the investment banking immersion was born sort of, you know, 97, 98 vintage, you know, with that history beyond it. Could you tell us a little bit more about the investment banking immersion? What do the students actually do? What do they work on? And what's it look like? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. So so again, this package of, of academic classes, so accounting classes, finance classes taught by academic theory-backed professors, and then we have this practicum that sits on top. That's the class that I teach, so maybe I'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. So the role of an investment banker, as we already talked about, is to advise companies on mergers and acquisitions and capital-raising transactions, and these things are really complex. No two transactions, either capital-raising or, or M&A, look alike, although you can learn a lot from prior transactions. So what I hope to do for a career switcher who wants to be an investment banker but just hasn't spent the time doing so is create a simulated environment whereby they're getting transaction experience in a structured way through working with me over the course of the semester. I know what they're learning in accounting. I know what they're learning in their finance classes. I know what they're learning in their modeling classes. And I'm writing cases that are using all of those core skills in a way that's applied specifically to investment banking. So here's an example. We just did a couple of weeks ago a case on a leverage buyout. A leverage buyout is when a company, traditionally a public company, is bought or taken private by a private equity firm. So a company like a TPG or an Apollo or a Carlyle, their business is to buy companies take them private, own them, make them better, make them more efficient, and sell them in uh, you know five or 10 years out to the market again. And the reason why it's called the leverage buyout is because if they're buying a company for $100, they might use 30 or 40 of their own dollars, and they might borrow the residual amount of money that they owe from a bank. And they use the cash flow from the company that they've acquired to pay off that debt over time. So that's why it's called the leverage buyout. It's a pretty unique structure, but it's, you know, it's probably, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15% of the overall M&A deal volume in any given year. You know, it's not a predominant transaction structure, but it's certainly something that we would expect some of our summer associates, some of our, our graduates from the IBI program to see. So we want to make sure that they get training in that. So how do we do that? Well, first, this is a, a pretty quantitative exercise. So in order to do a leverage buyout analysis, you have to actually get into financial modeling. You have to get into the Excel of sort of working through the mechanics of this leverage buyout. So we hire a third-party modeling vendor to come in over a weekend and teach the specifics of leverage buyout modeling. And that's about an eight-hour course that's done over a Saturday or a Sunday. As soon as that class is done, the Monday after they now have their new sort of honed Excel skills, I write a case and I deliver a case to them on on Monday morning, and they practice that Excel skill in a real-world environment. So this year, the subject company for the case that I wrote was Lear Company. Lear Company is an auto manufacturing company, generally speaking. They manufacture car seats. So if you drive a Ford or a Chrysler, chances are you're sitting on a seat that's been made by this company by the name of Lear. Okay. 
So Lear, good public company, not that expensive. It's, you know, the car seats, not exactly the most sexy industry, um, but they are reasonably stable. They have good profits and they, they have a number of the sort of deal points that in LBO speak would make them a good LBO candidate. So I read a case and said, come up with the analysis to figure out how an LBO transaction with Lear would work. And they have about a week to work on it. So they play the role of an investment banker and they're coming up with the analysis. I'm playing the role of a you know, senior person at Carlisle or TPG. And so after a week of working on this transaction in a team, they come to class, not for me to sort of lecture to them about how it would have worked, but for them actually to present to me. So we have this sort of simulated business meeting, if you will, where the investment banker is walking into the private equity firm's office and they're talking about the mechanics of this deal and the worthiness of this deal and sort of the, some of the sort of qualitative aspects of, of the deal as well. So it's about as real world as it gets. Lear is still a public company. It has not been taken private. But I would be surprised if investment banks in February, March of 2018, as we're talking right now, are not actively talking about a transaction like Lear to a company like Carlyle. So no, it's not a it's not a deal that's happened. Yes, it's a deal that's being talked about. And that really provides the perfect learning environment for my students where they can't Google the answer. There is no way to sort of look back at what actually happened, but it's as relevant as it, as it possibly could be from the perspective of what they're going to be seeing over the summer. I understand that you write all the cases for the immersion. Is that correct? I do. Yep. Would you say every deal is in the now? So is you're just coming up with things off the spot or are you looking at some other cases that may have been written previously? Yeah. So Johnson is kind enough to give me a, a free Wall Street Journal subscription. And unfortunately, I have to use that free Wall Street Journal subscription to read it every day and, and figure out what's actually happening in the real world um, outside of Ithaca, New York. So the cases that I write are really based on what my view of what's happening in the market is. So you know, again, going back to the company like Lear, that's a company that has enough of the boxes checked about whether or not it's a good LBO candidate to be in the conversation without actually having happened. And that to me, you know, again, provides that sort of perfect subject for writing a quick case to my students. So we'll do a leverage buyout deal, we'll do an initial public offering, an IPO. We'll do a bond offering. So, you know, just reminding everybody what an investment banker does, M&A and capital raising. We'll go through each of the transactions that an investment banker is responsible for advising on. And we'll go through that sort of simulated pitching and execution process so that at the end of the semester, they have, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11 deals under their belt. And when you go into a summer associate position, it's to me not enough to just have the individual piece parts. It's not enough to just know about the accounting or just know about the modeling or just know about the corporate governance. You have to be able to tie all that together into a conversation where you're providing specific advice to a specific client with all of that context. And it's impossible to be able to do that without writing all of my own cases and making them as topical as, as I do. I feel like I have to ask you, since you're a banker with a tech background, about blockchain and cryptocurrency. I have some friends that may have bet their entire tuition on cryptocurrency. Can you reassure them and tell them that was a great idea? <laughs> well, for any of those people, tell them I will meet them for a, a beer and rule-offs, and they can tell me uh, their own stupid story, and I'll, I'll help them drown in their sorrows. Not a good idea, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll give a quick vignette. First of all, blockchain and cryptocurrencies are two separate and apart conversations. Um, they often get intermingled, but blockchain is the underlying technology. Cryptocurrency is, is a financial asset that takes advantage of blockchain technology to, to work. 
So blockchain has lots of use cases. I think about it as a sort of public database or a public ledger of information that can be both verified and, and controlled. So there's lots of cool, you know, things like smart contracts, tax rolls, lending contracts, I think are all pretty good use cases for blockchain. Nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. When I think about something specific like Bitcoin, I think about when, when Bitcoin was created. So Bitcoin was, you know, back in the 2008 vintage and think about what computer hackers might be thinking about in 2008. So it was in the middle of the financial crisis. They thought the world was ending and they thought Wall Street basically started the end of the world. And they were highly, highly skeptical of financial institutions, of central banks, of anyone who could sort of control the currency that they needed to use to transact their lives. And so I understand the notion of creating a cryptocurrency that is non-fiat by definition or the value of which cannot be controlled by a central bank. You can't tell who's conducting business in it. It's completely anonymous. I think I understand the drivers behind why that happened. I also disagree with the notion that we should have a currency that can't be controlled from a monetary supply perspective by a central bank, because by and large, I think they do heroic things in times of, of need, like the financial crisis. Think about where we are in 2018 and the role of the central banks and, and some of the sort of you know, regulatory bodies, what they did in the middle of crisis to sort of get us here. That's an obvious use case for having central banks remain in place. But what's a real pain in the butt and what continues to be a real pain in the butt is changing currencies, right? So if you, if you go from the U.S. to Thailand, you have to transfer your currency into Thai baht to be able to conduct business there only to have to transfer it back once you get back to the United States. If you had some sort of a currency that worked better across border so that you didn't have this sort of high friction currency translation problem that we continue to have, I think the world would be a better place. The notion that a cryptocurrency can work across borders seamlessly and that you've sort of digitized the entire infrastructure associated with a currency, that's a, that's a good thing. When you think about Bitcoin and, and why Bitcoin spiked in terms of prices, you know, this is classic Vegas-style speculation, right? So just absolutely silly things that people were thinking about what the value of Bitcoin might be. I think, you know, the most rational reason I've heard for why you would bid up something like Bitcoin to, you know, the ridiculous prices that, that it achieved about a year ago pertain to the notion of scarcity value, right? So in the algorithm on which Bitcoin exists, there are a finite number of Bitcoins that can ever be mined. And I think people attach themselves to the notion of if this is going to be the digital currency in the world, and this is how people are going to transact business for the next hundred years, and there's a finite number of these things ever in existence, then the value of a single Bitcoin would be sky high because you're going to need these Bitcoins in order to sort of live and, and conduct business. So I think I understand the notion of that scarcity value and how much value that scarcity might, might have been worth, but it misses an absolutely fundamental point, which is to say Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency. In fact, there are thousands of them. So you've heard of these ICOs or initial coin offerings. New cryptocurrencies are being created every hour. So not only do you have to believe that the value of Bitcoin is a function of its scarcity, you also have to believe that 
no one else will use any other cryptocurrency to conduct business. And so not only is it scarce inside of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency. And if, if you follow that notion, then yeah, Bitcoin is worth a lot of money. If you don't follow that notion, you think some of the aspects of digital currency are good and you can use a myriad of cryptocurrencies in your digital life over the next you know 50 or 100 years and you transfer your wealth in cryptocurrency from one generation to the next, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in Bitcoin because these things are so easy to create, it completely breaks down this concept of scarcity value. So I wish the people that were buying these things at Sky High Values would have talked to somebody like me before then because I probably could have saved them a lot of money. But you know, maybe they can become investment bankers and, and make money and do good for the world. And that's how we'll recover from it. So as someone with not very strong opinions on anything, you've been <laughs> uh, quoted in many publications talking about Spotify's IPO. For our listeners that may not be aware, Spotify made a lot of news this year by going with a direct public offering or a bankless IPO. Could you walk us through a little bit about what makes Spotify so special and how they could pull that off? Sure. So first of all, Spotify is a great company with a great product, and they have a rabid user base and what appears to be a pretty solid business model. So I think it's a company that is capable of being public, unlike some of the other technology companies that may have sort of gotten ahead of themselves from the perspective of their business models. But you know, Spotify in and of themselves, good company. As you correctly pointed out, the reason why they've gotten so much press around their IPO is because they didn't use investment banks in a traditional way and therefore didn't pay traditional investment banking fees. So a lot of people are wondering, is this the beginning of the end for this role of the investment banker in the IPO process? So first of all, maybe I'll, I'll describe what an investment banker does um, and why they get paid what they get paid in an IPO. And then We'll talk about the individual nuance associated with the Spotify deal and why I don't think it signals any sort of broad shift in direction. So an investment banker at the highest level matches a buyer to a seller of new stock, right? So this is not a company that's ever been trading before. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, Spotify needs to raise money, either new money that goes on their balance sheet or some existing shareholders of Spotify that are looking to sell their shares for the first time on a public market. And the investment banker needs to sort of match that buyer with the seller. That in and of itself is not necessarily a complicated process. But when a company goes public for the first time, think about how that company started. You know, say a traditional technology firm that's based in the Valley. This one obviously is not. They're based in Sweden. But, you know, a Valley-based technology company would probably be, you know, a couple of people that sit in a coffee shop or in a garage and they're coding and they're hacking and they come up with something and they have something that looks reasonably close to some slideware or, you know, at least the description of a product, and they go and they pass their hat around to their parents and their friends and, and they, you know, get enough money to buy some ramen and a couple of tables and chairs. And then if they're more successful, then they can go and, you know, reach out to traditional venture capitalists that are going to invest in their company and look to take a very large stake in the company for a very little amount of money. The way they make money is they're just sort of betting on lots of small companies, maybe one out of 10 or 20 is going to be successful. If they're successful, they're wildly successful. And if they're not successful, well, they didn't invest a lot of money anyway. And the type of investor that would invest in a very small company without a product, without any revenue, certainly without any profits, is very different than the profile of an investor that invests in public company stocks. So these are mutual funds and pension funds and much more risk-averse risk investors that are looking for 
a lower return, but certainly want a lower level of risk associated with it. So two people operating in a coffee shop, that's a pretty risky endeavor to invest in because you know they don't have a product, they don't have any revenue, they don't have any customers, they could be out of business tomorrow. But once a company has, say, $100 million in revenue and they might be slightly profitable or they might be on their way to profitability, they have maybe 10 or 15 customers, they have reasonable market share inside of, a, inside of an industry that's growing, um, you might get a number of public investors to say, okay, you know, they're a big enough thing and they're a trustworthy enough thing for me to invest at that point. Well, if you think about that, you know, two people in a coffee shop to that $100 million in revenue, you're transitioning the company over a several year period from being very, very high levels of risk to some much more moderate level of risk. And, and again, as I described, the type of investor that would be interested in that two-person company versus the $100 million revenue company are very different. So the investment banker over the course of the IPO introduces a company that has really only spoken to that venture capital community to the public markets for the first time. And it gets them comfortable that they are of the profile or of the ilk or of the risk profile that is commensurate with public company investment strategy. And that's pretty complex. You have to tell the story of a company the first time in a unique way, in a way that a public company investor will not only understand, but respond to. So to me, there's no amount of sort of data or analytics or, or sort of, you know, AI that would create that or recreate that very human sales process um, as you're moving from one investor base to another. The specific issue associated with Spotify is that they've been around for a really long time and without the need of investment bankers or without, you know, sort of having to hire investment bankers in years past, they were able to attract a certain number of these public company type investors, so these sort of you know large mutual funds, large hedge funds that would traditionally invest in public companies, they were able to attract them to Spotify as a private company, in part because, again, Spotify is a household name. They did get big. Everyone kind of knew about them already. So you had this really unique circumstance where you had public company investors already invested in a private company. So when you think about Spotify wanting to list or, quote, go public, the whole notion and the whole value that an investment banker brings, which is to introduce a company to those public investors for the first time, well, that already happened. Spotify sort of did that on their own. So you didn't need to pay an investment banker for that traditional role of, of that translation or shift work that, that happens with respect to that investor base. So it's pretty unique. I mean, I can't name you know, too many companies that look like Spotify, that have the revenue scale of Spotify, that have the sort of household name recognition of Spotify that have the road to profitability of Spotify. So I think companies like that may be able to take advantage of this sort of bankerless IPO structure that you've seen. But the vast, vast majority of companies that are going public are not household names. They're not proven. They don't already have public company investors sitting inside their shareholding base. And therefore, they need that very nuanced selling process that an investment banker does to be able to transition their investor base from private to public. So that's a pretty great story on Spotify, and uh, it makes sense to me that they're positioned pretty uniquely. As someone who runs the investment banking immersion and commands a healthy amount of fear from the investment banker uh, uh, students, let's hear a great story from your time at Johnson and maybe loosen up some of that fear from my fellow classmates. <laughs> well, they have, if they have nothing to be fearful about. It's all an act, and, and I, uh, I promise I'm, I'm doing it. it. It hurts me more than it hurts them to be intimidating. How about, how about that? 
But I do, I do have a funny story to share. So when I was a, a student, I lived in College Town. My um, apartment backed up to the nines. So I would smell fresh pizza coming out of those ovens until I was falling asleep at night. It was a, it was a really cool place to live and a very easy commute to Sage Hall. So for people not, associate, not familiar with Cornell, it was probably a half-mile walk, which was a, a really nice commute in the morning and again at night. And the nines is a college-y, you know, one-of-a-kind pizza place that uh, people collect in and, and have beer and pizza. So Ithaca is a landlocked community in upstate New York that happens to sit at the bottom of one of these beautiful, sparkling finger lakes. And so Ithaca during the academic year is, is very much sort of a college town. When all the students leave, it becomes kind of a resort town. And there are lots of great lake houses that are available for weekly rentals and families come up and kind of do boating and go out and take advantage of, of the lake. So these are very highly valued houses in the summer and very lowly valued houses when it's 35 and, and you know, wind whipping off of the lake in, in February. So during my vintage, we had a lot of students that would rent lake houses as their second year residences. So first year, everyone sort of buckled down on the academics. Second year, they're looking to sort of take advantage of the community as much as possible. And there were a number, maybe five or six lake houses that were sort of passed from group to group um, over, over the years. And a good friend of mine, Ethan Spencer, he's probably going to hate me for even mentioning his name on this podcast, but one of those houses was not rented out for our second year. So over the course of the fall, we were really missing the fact that we could, you know, go and spend nights and weekends in a lake house and build bonfires and hang out on the dock and have some fun and enjoy our second year. So once we got back from break, we called the landlord of the dormant lake house and asked them if we could rent it for the spring semester. And we, you know, we were capable of getting out essentially by the time peak season started. So this thing was going to sit empty anyway. And, and we, you know, we were able to reach a deal where we got really cheap rent. But we were still paying double rent. So Ethan had a, his own apartment. I couldn't get out of my lease in, in college town. So we were now college, you know, MBA students with a lot of college debt now floating two rents, and which was not the smartest thing in the world. So we came up with this notion of inviting the community to be part of our rent experience. So we went to Home Depot and had probably 30 keys cut, and we created what's called the Silver Key Club. And for a mere $250, you could buy one of these keys, which would get you access to the lake house, which all it meant was we were going to invite you over anyway, and now it cost you $250 to actually show up and drink beer with us. So that was fascinating, you know, in and of itself, the fact that these things were purchased. The way better part of this story is the fact that we oversold. So these became like the cool thing to buy at Johnson. And we oversold to the point where there were enormous profits made from the Silver Key Club, well in excess of our rent payments that were due and utilities and stuffing the uh, the refrigerator with cheap beer and, and pretzels. So my first ability to generate revenue from Johnson was not when I came back or get paid by Johnson, was not when I came back as a faculty member, um, was actually as a second year student where I was selling $1.99 keys to my classmates for $250 for the privilege of hanging out with me in a lake house. Enterprising from the start. Drew Pasquarella, it was so great having you on uh, the podcast. Thanks for joining us on Present Value. Yeah, thanks for having me.
The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Michael Brady, and Harrison Job. Our editor was also Harrison. I'm your host, Chris Albrico. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pamango, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.